Got it. Everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to today's noon conference featuring Dr. Joshua Hyman, who is leading us on this really cool Waterbury Clinic research project, Lipoprotein A and Reverse Cascade Screening. Whatever that is, it shows great promise to be fantastic. Uh, the one or two line bona fides, Dr. Hyman played on the New Rochelle tennis team. This is true. Went to Harvard undergraduate, uh, Harvard College, came here for Yale Medical School, wrote a really awesome thesis on thriving. Had an amazing mentor. Re yeah, resident thriving. <laughs> and then, um, and is we're grateful that he's here with us, um, making the world a better place, uh, especially for the patients of Waterbury and the good folks here at Yale. Dr. Hyman, take it away. Hello, good tribe. You might still want to lower that somehow. I don't know how we can do that, but that's okay. Um, so I'm working on this uh, project in clinic, and it stems from my interest in um, preventive medicine and in risk stratification. But aside from lipoprotein A, which I will teach you a lot about today, I think a bigger takeaway from this talk, if you're gonna take away anything, is the importance of always reading more and always trying to see what are the newest guidelines and recommendations because the times they are changing and we always need to do best by our patients. And the only way we can do that is by being um, thoughtful about seeing what are the current recommendations and how can we provide the best care in our clinic? So that's kind of a, um, a thought behind this project and hopefully you will enjoy and you will learn something. Okay, so to start um, disclosures, I am on the board of directors of Eli Lilly, Amgen, Pfizer, and Nova Nordisk. I'm also in the pocket of Big Pharma. So um, just to put it out there, um, as far as getting to the, the, the meat and potatoes, what is lipoprotein A? Well, it's, it's a mouthful to start. So I'm going to call it LPA from here on out. It is a lipid particle. Huzzah. It is not measured on the standard lipid panel. Boo. But it can be measured with a simple blood test. Yay. Why does it matter? LPA is a causal risk factor for uh, calcific aortic valve stenosis and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, including myocardial infarction, cerebral vascular accident, peripheral artery disease, and abdominal aortic aneurysm. ASCVD is the leading cause of death and disability worldwide. As a friendly reminder for the audience, death and disability are bad things, and we should try to prevent them. As the LPA level increases, the risk increases. This is similar to LDL. And LPA level is independent of LDL level. So you can have different combinations of LDL and LPA. So I have an audience here. If you had normal or low LDL and normal or low LPA, is that good or bad? 
pretty good, yeah. Yeah, great. What if you had elevated LDL and normal LPA? That's bad. What about normal LDL and elevated LPA? Bad. And what about elevated LDL and elevated LPA? Very bad. Okay, so we have to go to the basics here, but um, it's important to know some of these things that it's causal, that it's independent of LDL, and that we can actually look for it. So how can we determine a patient's LPA level? The only currently available method to know if someone has elevated LPA is to measure it with a simple blood test that's relatively inexpensive on the range of $50 to $100. And um, from what I've gathered, ordering it in clinic, I have not seen that patients have been billed. I've, no one's complained about it. Um, so as of yet, it hasn't been a financial issue. Um, this is an important point because you cannot intuit someone's LPA level by knowing their family history, by knowing their LDL level, by knowing their BMI. This is something that you can only gather by testing, but you have to know to test to test. So what makes um, LPA special? And so there are various domains and I'll go through four of them. One, it's highly prevalent. Okay, so here we have two graphs looking at men and women. We consider elevated LPA when you're greater than 50 uh, milligrams per deciliter, because um, that's when your risk really starts to take off as far as ASCVD and um, valve disease. So um, what we see here is that about 20%, one in five um, people in the population have elevated lipoprotein A. And that is true for men and that is true for women. Looking here, the, these numbers are pretty stable across the globe. So um, depending on where you're looking geographically, um, elevated LPA levels might be 10% uh, of the population, might be upwards of 30%. On average, you're looking at 20% have an elevated uh, level, which puts them at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Compare this to familial hypercholesterolemia. This is something that we and I, and I will emphasize this point later on, we do universal, or we should be doing universal lipid screening for in kids, but that has a population incidence of one in 250 or one in 300. So we're looking universally for a disease that has a one in 300 state, but we're not looking for a disease that has a one in five state. So that's an interesting thing just to kind of keep in the back of our head. So what makes lipoprotein A special part two? It's highly atherogenic, okay? So this is a graph that is showing as the lipoprotein A level increases, this uh, on, the, on the Y axis, you have your cardiovascular, or sorry, this is coronary artery disease risk in individuals who do not have a family history of um, premature cardiovascular disease. And what you can see here is that the level is pretty much linear. So as you increase your lipoprotein A, concentration, your risk increases. And it doesn't really plateau at levels that we've um, been testing for thus far. So some other data here. This is another um, piece of evidence showing that they have these different um, buckets of lipoprotein A levels. And as you see, the purple bucket, which is the highest, greater than 93 um, mg per deciliter, um, you have the highest risk of stroke in women, men, non-smokers, smokers, younger adult, um, younger adults, older adults. So across demographics, this atherogenicity holds true. 
And I'd like to draw your attention here to the red boxes. There's a lot of words here, but this is showing lipoprotein A levels when you go to the greater than 99th percentile as compar compared to the less than 50th percentile levels. Um, your risk of peripheral artery disease, abdominal aortic aneurysm, and major adverse limb events, including losing a limb entirely, um, goes up two to threefold. And um, what they found is for um, looking at older patients who smoke, if you have are in the higher um, levels of lipoprotein A, um, so great, greater than 143 mg per deciliter in this study, um, your risk of um, peripheral artery disease was a two to three times higher uh, in men and women than for people who had lower levels. So once again, it's causal, independent, and uh, highly atherogenic. Even more evidence, and I'll just draw your attention once again to the red box, and I'll just read this verbatim. In most people, this is comparing the atherogenicity of LDL as compared to uh, LPA. So in most people, LDL particles are much more abundant than LPA, and they carry the greatest proportion of overall risk. However, on a per particle basis, meaning if you look at for every one particle of LDL compared to one particle of lipoprotein A, LPA is six times more atherogenic. Okay. Um, and one last data point here. If you compare people and their risk of heart attack, and you look at folks who are genetically um, diagnosed with familial hypercholesterolemia, the equivalent risk of heart attack is seen in patients with a lipoprotein A level of 180 mg per deciliter or higher. So in a population that's greater than 50 in one in five um, people, you're going to see a substantial fraction of the general population is going to be at an equivalent risk of heart attack as someone with familial hypercholesterolemia. But we need to test for it. We need to know that. So how does it actually um, cause these issues? It's two main cascades, thrombosis and atherosclerosis. There's this nice image here, um, but lipoprotein A is a very uh, nasty agent that works um, through different mechanisms to cause the problems that we're trying to prevent and avoid in our patients. What's another factor that makes LPA um, unique or special? It's highly stable. So they've done studies where they've done um, uh, follow-up measurement of someone's LPA measurements over time. And what they've seen is that, um, as you can see on this graph, 85% of those measurements, there's no difference between the measurements. 10% um, are slightly higher and 5% are slightly lower. And the absolute change um, was about 25. But importantly, despite the fact that 10% were higher and 5% were lower over time, there was no association with your risk being different. So statistically, what we're looking for is what your level is at stays roughly the same over time. And even if it were to fluctuate slightly, that doesn't actually modify your risk. And um, this, I actually think, is the most shocking fact about LPA, when I learned about it, is that the levels do not change significantly after five years of age. So that means a seven-year-old with an elevated lipoprotein A is going to have that for the next 70, 80 years of their life. And we can detect that at seven years old. And this enables a fascinating aspect of LPA testing. It's one and done. Unlike lipid panels, A1C, blood pressure, weight, which we have to do either at every visit, every three months, once a year, what have you. 
This is a test you do once in a patient's life after they're five years old and you have information about their risk. And uh, finally, what makes it so special? It's highly heritable. It's greater than 90% heritable um, and lifestyle modification plays almost no role. You can't exercise your way out of elevated lipoprotein A. You can't diet your way out of it. This is because it's an autosomal codominant inheritance pattern. Um, and here are some uh, money quotes. LPA is more heritable than hypertension, diabetes, and obesity, which we know have a high concordance between parents and kids. And lipoprotein A is the lipoprotein with the strongest genetic control, more than LDL, more than HDL, more than triglycerides, okay? What you're saying is that LPA is a like risk prognosticator, not a target for therapy. That is correct, but there are studies, and I'll get to this later, that they are ongoing looking at outcomes data, and it may become a target. And even if it's not a target, it's still actionable, and I'll get to that um, in a bit. So, in summary, what makes LPA so special? Highly prevalent, one in five people have it. Highly atherogenic. It significantly increases your risk of ASCVD um, and uh, aortic valve stenosis. It's highly stable. After five years of age, your level does not statistically significantly change over time. And with the asterisks being there, um, in periods of extreme um, stress or inflammation, you can have distorted levels. But in the outpatient setting, when someone's not acutely ill, the level that you get in that setting is likely the level they'll maintain it the rest of their life. And it's highly heritable. Um, it's one of the most heritable um, biomarkers we actually have um, capable of studying. So, um, okay, we get it. And sorry, this is a little blocked for the people in the room, but uh, Josh Hyman is obsessed with LPA, but is there anyone else in the world talking about it? Is it just me and me on my high horse? It's very funny that you ask, because the answer is yes. Many people are talking about it. We're just not listening. Who's talking about it? And what are they saying? Okay, and I'm going to go in descending order of chronology. In 2022, not too long ago, folks, the European Atherosclerosis Society recommended one-time universal LPA testing in adults. Our uh, friendly neighbors to the north, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society in 2021, likewise recommended one-time universal LPA testing in a person's life. I'll highlight the word person there. I, and I scrounged through their guideline. They did not say adult, they said person. The American Heart Association in 2021, likewise, they had a scientific statement which said LPA testing could inform clinical decision-making and it can be used as a risk-enhancing factor. Meaning if you think someone's at moderate risk of cardiovascular disease and then you come to find that their LPA is elevated, you might actually consider them at high or very high risk depending on the level. The National Lipid Association in 2019 said that it is reasonable to test for LPA as a, uh, for cardiovascular risk refinement in adults at intermediate or high ASCVD risk. So that's a 10-year risk of um, 5% or more, which applies to many of our patients. And the European Society of Cardiology in 2019 uh, also um, mentioned that it can help identify patients who have a high lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. Okay, we get it. Uh, testing for LPA in adults might be reasonable, but are there any FDA approved medications to treat it? And, and this is Jake's uh, question. So no, there are no um, FDA approved medications as of yet. But with that being said, 
There are promising pharmacotherapies that are currently in development that show safety and efficacy for LPA lowering. This is from the American Heart Association 2023 conference, so only a few uh, months ago. This is just one agent, a small interfering RNA, um, randomized clinical trial that showed significant um, LPA lowering on the order of 90, 95%. And there are a few other mechanisms. So there's some antisense oligonucleotides that they're investigating, other small interfering RNAs. We actually have agents that are currently available. They're not FDA approved for LPA lowering specifically, but PCSK9 inhibitors and lipid apheresis both have been shown to lower um, LPA levels, but there have not been studies looking at those particular um, uh, mechanisms um, as far as outcomes. Um, but we know that we can lower LPA and we know that it can be done safely. We don't yet have the data about outcomes. Can I ask about, can you go back to that? Does anyone know anything about like the small interfering RNA technology or antisense oligonucleotide? Does anyone know about any of this stuff? I actually kind of have no idea. I know like I mean, in general what they do, but right. not about these specific. I mean, it's sort of, it looks like it just binds to the DNA and then it gums up the transcription yeah, of the other. protein and stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Right? That's above my pay grade. Um, but yeah, it's cool stuff. Awesome. So um, I, I kind of already spoiled this. Do we have outcomes it's data? Like a vaccine. I mean, that's the that's basically it was kind of like the whole And thing. the thing about so just going to this one from from November 2023. This was a one time injection, and this was a year later. Um, so it's not like oh a, a daily pill or a weekly injection that we see or twice you know twice a month. This was one injection over the course of a year so sorry yeah, it's like the let's, change let's in your a little bit this yeah, is pretty awesome the change in your lpa concentration uh -huh. um over time you see it's about a year so from the oh, initial okay. visit it's a single dose and these are the um these are the dosing um milligrams yes so if you got 608 milligrams you were almost you could see almost 100 percent drop 95 90 percent drop Yes. Um, this was, a, I, I didn't go through the intricacies of this particular study, but in general, I can say that these have been very well tolerated and, and safe medications. Yeah, I don't, so they don't know yet. This might be something that you redose yearly where they're in the process of figuring out the pharmacokinetics and pharmaco whatever's, um, but so great question, June. I mean, um, this is the coolest thing. Can you yeah. imagine being a patient being like, oh, I got my flu shot, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. like, yeah. I got my, you know, my COVID, which is an RNA vaccine. That Don't tell them that. And I'm like, right? And then, oh, I got to get my cholesterol shot. Don't That's tell them anything about gene it's modifications. Not <laughs> it's, it's not gene modifications. I know. I know you know that, yeah. But, okay, so to June. To June's question and to Jake's earlier question, do we have outcomes data showing that lowering LPA levels actually lowers risk? And the answer is no, we don't have that. So there's a question. Is LPA more like LDL or is it more like HDL? What do I mean by that? So higher LDL, as we know, is associated with higher risk. And lowering LDL critically leads to lower risk. But this is not the case in, H in HDL. We know that lower HDL is associated with higher risk. But studies have conclusively shown at this point that therapies that raise HDL do not lower your risk. So we don't know yet if lipoprotein A is just something that says you have this risk and we can target it, 
and lower your risk? Or is it just something that you have a risk and there's not much that we can specifically do about your LPA guided risk? We're not sure yet, but there are. Um, we're going to have some answers relatively soon in the next few years. Outcome trials, multiple of them, I believe, are underway. Um, and this is just one of them that is still recruiting patients um, looking at um, cardiovascular outcomes with LPA lowering. So would you say if your LPA is elevated, you're a patient that based on your risk determinants is like moderate risk, but the LPA being elevated is more of a higher risk? Yep. Would that you think in the future like still kind of affect my status or my Um so like PCSK9? Right. Well absolutely if you felt like somebody and, and there's more and more evidence that PCSK9s that's a whole nother topic, but um, yes, you can certainly think about that or adding Zetio or adding Bempidoic right. acid. There are so many tools in our arsenal that for logistical reasons are often hard to access, yeah. but um, they are there and, and you, you, we ought to consider those types of escalation of therapy. Okay. Why is June spoiling my entire uh, presentation? No, yes, she's totally right. So perfectly, perfectly timed. While we await, while we await these FDA approved medications, is there anything we can do in the meantime? Very good question. The answer is yes. Yes, there is. So the evidence is clear. We can attenuate the additional ASCVD risk associated with elevated LPA by targeting modifiable risk, uh, risk factors. LDL, blood pressure, A1C, BMI. The tried and true works here as well. So we just see in this lovely graph that folks who have um, the highest levels of LPA, those are the red boxes, um, you can lower your risk of cardiovascular disease as you lower your number of risk factors. You treat their hypertension, you treat their obesity, if you treat their diabetes. If you do all the things we should be doing, you can lower their risk. Okay. I want to make a few analogies here because there might be, well, is it like this? Is it like that? L testing for LPA is not analogous to testing for something like Huntington's. Huntington's disease, as we know, a horrible, lethal genetic condition, autosomal dominant. If you have the gene, you are at this time, we don't have therapies um, to, to treat it, um, you're in a bad place. And um, so you basically get this risk information, but there's nothing we can do about it. You just have to sit with that and eventually succumb to the illness. And LPA is not like that. There are things, as I just mentioned, we can do to lower your risk. Is this analogous to BRCA testing? So in BRCA testing, there are things that we can do. If you test, if you have a family history of breast cancer, or if you test positive for the BRCA mutation, um, there are therapies we can do. You can have a, a prophylactic double mastectomy. You can have an oophorectomy. Um, these are very radical interventions to prevent risk and, and, and to improve someone's morbidity and mortality. LPA is not like that. We don't need to do radical surgeries. Um, to lower somebody's risk. We need to do all the things that we should be doing in clinic already, but maybe putting more oomph behind our step, really trying to get the LTL to goal and not letting it be good enough. And one of my mantras, and June has heard this many times, good enough is not good enough. 
if there's a target for 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 um, some biometrical point, BMI, A1C, we must strive to achieve that and not be slightly above it, not be moderately above it. We owe it to our patients to actually try to achieve the guideline-directed goals that they should be at for their risk reduction. What is LPA testing analogous to then? It's like testing for someone, it's like asking a patient, do you have a family history of premature cardiovascular disease? We know that patients with a premature history of cardiovascular disease are at higher risk of themselves having cardiovascular disease. I can't change the fact that the patient in front of me's father had a heart attack at 43, right? I can't unwind that clock, but I now know something about them that's actionable, about treating their blood pressure, treating their weight, treating their diabetes, treating their, their LDL. And in fact, studies have shown both LPA and family history together can help us risk stratify patients and they have additive benefit. So they did this study, if you take into account someone's LPA level and their family history of coronary heart disease, um, together they actually improve your risk discrimination compared to just using one of those metrics alone. So we should be in the same way that we should ask all of our patients when we're doing an ASCVD risk calculation about family history, we should be taking lipoprotein A measurements. It'll help us refine our risk. Okay, we get it. We should target modifiable risk factors in patients with elevated LPA, but are there any practical tools we can use other than this kind of like big picture oh philosophical stuff of treating risk factors to integrate LPA into our clinical practice today. Yes, yes there are. So there's this wonderful website put out by the European Atherosclerosis Society called lpaclinicalguidance.com. And what you do is similar to the ASCVD calculator, you put in the various metrics and then they have a box for LPA. And it shows you in a very clear and concise manner, how does having an elevated lipoprotein A level affect your risk? So here, this person under the normal you know, ASCVD risk calculator will be at 21%, which is already high risk um, for a 10-year risk of a heart attack or stroke. But if we include an LPA level of 150, you've doubled, more than doubled their risk. This person is an extreme risk of cardiovascular disease, but we wouldn't know that if we didn't check. Now, another great thing about this website is that it's very concrete about what you can do to offset that risk. So it's hard, it might be hard to see because um, the, the, the text is a little bit low, but what you can do at the bottom here, and I'll just show the people, it'll say, how much should I lower my blood pressure or my LDL? This is a sliding scale. And that can show you what, you can do to your risk. So this was the person's risk with the LPA measurement. This is without LPA. And this is with risk factor modification. So if we lower our LDL by one, I forget whatever the European conversion of LDL, obviously this is not like the American version, but if you lower it by that amount and you lower your systolic blood pressure by 10, we have now taken our overall risk from 44.5% to 26.4 we've almost completely offset the risk of your elevated LPA by doing blood pressure and LDL. And you don't need to guesstimate. These things, these, these data points can tell us precisely what we should be targeting. Okay, it also can be used today as a modified ASCVD risk calculation. You do the exact same ASCVD, American College of Cardiology 10-year risk calculator, and there's this lovely equation that they've um, had studies showing that it has um, you know, prognostic benefit for. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole level, but it involves doing some multiplication and other things that we can do with basic uh, arithmetic here. And what the example they give is if a patient has a 10-year risk, um, but an LPA level of 250, if you put in the numbers and 
you know, click equals, you get an elevated risk to actually 16.9%. That would have been um, something that we would have missed if we didn't take LPA into account. And this is um, another possibility to think about, and I had this chat with Dr. Doolittle before um, during a prior clinic session, but about prescribing aspirin. So as we all know, recently the um, United States Preventive Task Force came out and basically um, weakened the recommendation for aspirin and primary prevention um, that it really is, it ought to be a much more shared decision-making in our young adult or middle-aged adult population. And we really should stay away from it in our older adult population because of the risk of bleeds. One thing that's interesting is that when they've um, stratified patients by their LPA level, and there are a few studies showing this, and as you can see, the, the dates on these studies, these are not old studies. This is hot off the presses, January, 2024, September, 2023. Aspirin use- That was your paper. Exactly. We have the author right here. Okay, so um, aspirin use significantly lowers um, coronary heart disease events in patients with elevated lipoprotein A. Aspirin may benefit older individuals with elevated lipoprotein A in primary prevention. And evidence suggests that individuals with elevated LPA benefit more from aspirin therapy than people in the general population. So this is not something that's in a guideline. I wouldn't. I don't have as much of a strong you know, say, oh, we must be prescribing our patients with elevated lipoprotein A on aspirin, but it's something to consider. Maybe you were leaning towards prescribing them aspirin, and this just makes you feel even more comfortable with that decision. Wait, so what's your project idea again? Weren't you going to do something in clinic? Yes, yes. So there's two main steps, um, and I'll get to kind of the logic here. Um, step one, universal one-time LPA testing in children 9 to 11 or 17 to 21. So the AAP already recommends universal lipid testing in children 9 to 11 and 17 to 21. Uh, the purpose of this testing is to identify children with primary dyslipidemias, um, mostly being FH. Um, we don't even need an additional blood draw. It's the same blood draw we're sending the kids to for their lipid screenings. So step two, what happens um, when we get the results? If a child tests positive for an elevated LPA level, we perform a reverse cascade screening protocol and encourage first degree relatives to also undergo LPA testing. So what is reverse cascade screening? It's a protocol for screening family members following the identification of a risk factor or disease state in a child. Um, reverse cascade screening can be compared to our conventional cascade screening where the risk factor or disease is identified in an adult. Um, and of note, studies show that doing child reverse cascade screening creates the opportunity for more relatives to be tested at a younger age as compared to conventional. Now this makes intuitive sense because if an adult develops their disease at 50 or 60, and then you, then you start reverse cascade screening, by then their children are 30 or 35. But if the child is eight years old and you've or nine years old and you identified the issue, the parents might be 26. The parents might be 30 or 40. So um, reverse cascade screening is already or should be routinely used in the management of FH. If a kid tests positive on their lipid screen and their LDL is 190, right, we should be screening the parents to, to, to make, because they're the ones who are at immediate high risk, the parents. Um, yes. So, so thus far, we have not run into issues with testing. That might change. Um, yeah, because usually what happens is they, um, if you order something and um, especially with Medicare, like 
order something and the diagnosis code doesn't justify it, uh, the EPIC gives you a little your warning signal. And then, uh, but even then, sometimes what happens is, you know, someone will say, oh, I got the abandoned bill, but but this hasn't happened. Yeah. How many times have you tested for like a first aid? Well, in adults, I've probably done it a dozen to 20 no. times. And in kids now, six. No, this is uh, uh, as part of this project. Yeah. So um, how does, and Teresa had a question from, sorry, about 20 minutes ago, I missed this. How does this change my counseling with patients if I know they are at high risk and I can't influence their risk with lifestyle changes? So just, um, and I, I apologize, Teresa, if this answer was already provided in kind of my other um, slides from before, but basically in that case, um, that's where you have to, you know, it's not just about lifestyle, it's about targeting the things that we know can lower their risk and can attenuate their risk, namely blood pressure, BMI, um, cholesterol, um, and um, diabetes. Okay, so let's move on here. Oh my goodness. Yes, perfect. The chat is blowing up indeed. Okay, how will this project work in practice? So this is gonna be my, my burden to bear um, each week, and because I don't wanna put a burden on you, okay? So that's important to me. So each week before clinic, Josh Hyman and accomplices, if people are interested, will look at the upcoming schedule for clinic. If any appointment with a resident schedule for a pediatric patient age nine to 11 or 17 to 21, Josh Hyman, myself, will log into the patient's chart and penned, penned an order, LPA panel and a um, for LPA and a lipid panel. Okay, you guys are the clinicians. You can decide. Do you want to do that or not? Maybe they don't want a blood draw. Maybe it's not the right time. You use your clinical judgment. But I'm trying to make it easy. A little nudge, as they do in behavioral psychology, pending an order to consider the place and. Um, all the residents actually seeing the patients need to do is sign the order, okay? I'm going to do the follow-up, and that's going to be another important thing, too. So residents are not obligated to participate. Their assistance would obviously be greatly appreciated. I'll just collect more data more quickly if, if more people do this. Yeah. That's a very good question, June. Um, I haven't... So as of yet... or. In, in the few patients I've, I've been doing it on who are in this bracket. So I, I'm being strict about the age. So if they're 12, if they're eight, I'm not doing this. But if at nine years of age, they had a, a lipid panel and they're here at their 10 years old, I am ordering the LPA and I'm ordering the, the lipid panel again. And the reason for that is you, in, in LPA studies, they almost always have a lipid panel along with it just to test. Um, so this is kind of where the clinical judgment will come in. If you feel like, oh, we already have that and it's done, then you don't need to, you don't need to order it. It's okay, um, obviously, but um, that would be my thought. So I'm responsible personally for notifying the caregivers about their child's LPA test results. If a child tests positive for an elevated level, I will try to schedule one or more of the child's first degree relatives for some type of televisit um, to discuss the results and to order LPA testing for them. And then they become my patients. And so then that doesn't become any, any issue. That's a key point because we can't be running around ordering LPA on LPAs correct and so they have so to be if they say oh i love my doctor i go out right you know Woodbridge or whatever right and you say okay this 
Fifty to hundred dollars, but we haven't had issues with with patients having to bear that cost. Um, this is really cool. Are yeah. these for the nine to eleven and seventeen one? Are these just at well visits or any patient who's there even if it's for like a follow up? Also, good question. Uh, frankly, I have been for my own patients. I haven't started putting the the pended orders for other residents, but I've been doing it when they show up, um, just because you never know yeah. who's gonna show up again. Um, so that was my thought, but so the reason June that they don't test to the lipid panel during that age, there's, yeah, there's some change. So I wouldn't want to test in that area at that time, even if they hadn't had lipids, um, for that reason. So, um, and so let's just see what the people in the chat have to say. If I'm getting obesity less for an Allison outside of the age range, can I also, so um, you can, I wouldn't include that in my study because I'm, I, I, I wanna make a point that we can add it on as a part of what we should already be doing for universal screening. I don't wanna make a more complex system. Right. Yeah. Now, could you order it? Sure, because like I said, after five years of age, it gives you some information, but um i wouldn't be included in my data okay so a, f a th few more things here because uh, i know that we have a hard stop um in 10 minutes so whoa, whoa whoa you talked a lot about recommendations for lpa testing in adults but what about testing in kids we didn't really talk about that in the data so here's what they say i'm going back to the canadian cardiovascular society 2021 so they recommended uh, measuring it once in a person's lifetime as part of their initial lipid screening. This is their verbatim language. Um, and I looked through, they don't have a section on pediatrics. They don't have a section on children or youth. This is the language they use. Um, we know that the levels are stable after five years of age. So there's, you know, two pretty logical, you know, I forget uh, how to do mathematical proofs, but, you know, if A says testing is stable after five years and B says test everybody, it kind of seems logical that C would be, well, then you can test anybody after five years. But they're not formally saying that. I, I want to be very clear. That's Josh Hyman's interpretation of the logic of, that, of the data, but um, this is what people are actually saying. So the National Lipid Association says it's reasonable to test youth who have the following risk factors. Um, fam, um, they, they have FH, family history of cardiovascular disease, unknown cause of ischemic stroke, or a first degree relative with elevated LPA. That one I almost laugh at because no one's testing it. So how the hell would you know if their family member has elevated level? Okay, what does the American Heart Association say in 2019? Um, they think that elevated LPA levels can help risk stratify pediatric patients to a moderate risk category. Um, but to be honest, most major cardiovascular guidelines either recommend selective screening, so kids who are at higher risk, or remain silent on the question, likely due to the scarcity of data on the topic. So what is some expert opinion on LPA testing in kids? And I'm not going to read you know, every single quote here, but LPA testing in youth, particularly in childhood, is a feasible strategy, a strategy can help modify risk um, compared with patients who are tested later in life. It can equip parents with the knowledge needed to foster beneficial lifestyle choices. LPA measurement, included as part of routine universal lipid screening in youth, would identify those children at risk of cardiovascular disease and enable cascade screening, exactly what I'm trying to do. 
inclusion of a single LPA measurement performed as part of routine universal lipid screening is feasible and cost-effective. Once again, and, and hot off the presses, February 2024, August 2023. This is not stuff that's, you know, been sitting around. We can kind of do cutting edge stuff at Waterbury. Okay, other stuff. Uh, it's clear that youth who enter adulthood with the lowest possible burden of risk factors will have a lower risk of developing ASCVD. We know about this. We know about cumulative damage, cumulative risk. So if we know someone's risk early and we can target their risk factors from a young age, that's beneficial. Um, systematic LPA screening strategies early in life may provide opportunities for reverse cascade screening, as I mentioned. And knowing that a child's LPA level is elevated helps to define their risk and impact clinical decision-making. Okay, so this is all within the past three years people are saying this. So in summary, elevated LPA levels are a causal risk factor for ASCVD. They're present in about 20% of the population. They remain stable after five years of age. Many experts, including major society guidelines, advocate for universal LPA testing in adults. Some experts advocate for universal LPA testing in kids, though admittedly is not yet in the major society guidelines. Since LPA is so highly genetically determined, identifying kids with elevated levels should trigger a reverse cascade screening protocol to find their affected relatives. And once patients are identified as having elevated LPA levels, we will then be in a better position to risk stratify them and more aggressively target their risk factors while we await promising lower uh, LPA lowering pharmacotherapies potentially slated for approval in the near future. So I want to just, th that's, that's the end of my talk, but I just wanted to say one more point here which is that 